the most influential people in my life are the people who are probably the most different from me because I felt like I learned the most. Not that I was going to be like them, but that I took something away from that relationship that made me better understand other people. All right, welcome back or welcome to the Finding Mastery Podcast. I'm Michael Gervais. And the idea behind these conversations is to learn from people who are on the path of mastery, to better understand what they're searching for, to understand their psychological framework, which is a fancy phrase for understanding how they see themselves in the world and how they understand other people. And then we also want to dig to understand the mental skills that they use to build and refine their craft. Finding Mastery is brought to you by Bubs Naturals. Like you, I am mindful about what I put into my body. So for me, it usually comes down to ingredients and simplicity. The shorter the list, the better. And that's why I've been loving Bub's Naturals. Bub's creates products with high quality, all natural ingredients that are designed to help us get after the adventures in life. For years, I've been a huge fan of their hydrate or die electrolyte mix. I mean, that's a fun title for a product, isn't it? It only has six total ingredients. It's packed with electrolytes. I love the taste. No added sugar. No artificial flavors, none of that stuff. It's great for post-workout recovery. That's when I use it. And I also use it during long periods of travel, which I've been doing a lot lately. And so thank you for the hydration here. And a ton of athletes that I know swear by them too. They're currently in just about every MLB locker room. They work closely with the Red Sox, the Yankees, I know the Rangers, Cardinals, Diamondbacks, and, and many more, of course. I'd love for you to go check them out. I think they're doing a really nice job. Just head to bubsnaturals.com slash findingmastery and enter the code findingmastery at checkout for 20% off your first purchase. Again, that's bubsnaturals, B-U-B-S naturals.com slash findingmastery with the code findingmastery for 20% off your first purchase. Finding Mastery is brought to you by Hims. Hims is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-informed treatments for erectile dysfunction, ED, hair loss, weight loss, and more. Health struggles like ED are common, but they can be hard to talk about when it comes to finding a solution. That's why Hims has been a game changer for so many men. The entire process is 100% online, and if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free, and in discreet packaging. No waiting rooms, no pharmacy visits. Plus, you can manage your plan directly on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. So if you or a loved one has been struggling with ED, I really want to encourage you to go check out Hims. And I know ED often has a psychological component as well. So be sure that you're stacking some psychological best practices into your daily routine as well. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash finding mastery. That's hymns, H-I-M-S dot com slash finding mastery for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash finding mastery. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash EOF for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. Okay, this conversation is with Rick Welts. 
Rick has 40 years of experience in the NBA, and he's currently the president and the chief operating officer of the Golden State Warriors, who have just won their second championship in three years. And what a phenomenal run. It's a very special point in time that we're observing a super team. And when we watch the Golden State Warriors perform and play, it feels as if from a distance that they're in group flow more often than any other team in the or in the league. And group flow, when you think about that, is like a swarm of birds that are moving and undulating in space, following the rhythm of the lead bird that changes each undulation. And so like there's a it's just a phenomenal team to observe and see what they're doing. So he understands winning. He understands culture. He understands how to align people and thoughts and ideas and efforts to create something very special. And in this conversation, we talk about that and how he organizes his thoughts and other people's efforts. And we also talk about risk, both private and public risk, and how important alignment is in life. And that phrase alignment is really about knowing who you are and having alignment on how you live. So we get into the weeds with that. And then Rick is also known to be a world-class communicator. And that definitely comes through in this conversation. So with that, let's jump right into this conversation with Rick Welts. Rick, how are you? I'm doing great. <laughs> yeah. Thank oh, you. Em- emphatically so. Yeah, very well, much. Thank you for hosting and having me up here uh, at your facility. It's, it's Pleasure. A, yeah. And so I, I've been following, like many people, what you've done here over the last, I think it's been five or six years? Six seasons. Six seasons. And what an incredible, how, how do you mark this? Just an incredible journey you've been on. And marked early on from all of the success and different points of view you've had in elite sports, starting as a ball boy, way back in Seattle's uh, Supersonics. True. Yeah. All the way through into the league office and the NBA. And now here's the president of the Warriors. When you think about your journey, how do you think about all of those different chapters that you've had? That it's probably great to be at the right place at the right time, number one, and uh, never underestimate the value of luck in that kind of timing. Uh, Because truly, if I hadn't uh, befriended Earl Woodson at Queen Anne High School, in Seattle, who was the coolest kid in my high school because he was a ball boy for the Seattle Supersonics. And if Earl's family hadn't decided they were going to move away from Seattle and Earl hadn't agreed to take me down and introduce me to the trainer of the Sonics who hired the ball boys, I probably wouldn't be sitting here across from you today. So, uh, you know, I've had uh, a series of great luck and hopefully you prepare yourself for the opportunity, but you do have to have other people in your life who give you a chance to show what you can do. Mm, Okay. So you remember Earl very well. Yeah. And how old were you then? I would have been 16, 16. Okay. And then what was it about you and sports at the age of 16? Like, were you into it? Did you want to be an athlete? Were you an athlete? Was Uh, it just something that sounded fun? I, uh, had that as the connection point with my father in our relationship. I started going to University of Washington football games when I was, uh, you know, probably able to walk. Mm. Uh, and the experience of uh, going to, to sports with my dad became kind of our currency for interaction. And the Sonics uh, were the first major league sports franchise Seattle ever had uh, starting in 1967. And he and I started going to games at the uh, old Seattle Center Coliseum. 
And I fell in love with the sport for sure. I mean, there was something, you know, this was getting to see Bill Russell play and getting to see Wilt Chamberlain play. And I loved the drama on the court, but I think what impressed me more or made him uh, kind of set me on a path was seeing what that collection of, in those days, probably 10,000 people at an NBA game, uh, what that meant uh, to the community uh, to see the pride that Seattle had in having a professional team that was competing with New York and Los Angeles and Chicago in ways the city had never been on a platform like that before. But also to see how, you know, all these people who had absolutely nothing in common except a rooting interest in a particular team could come together and, uh, you know, really create a town hall that doesn't exist, especially today, uh, probably existed more then. But there are very few places where we gather like that to kind of celebrate something together uh, publicly. Uh, it was kind of the first social network, I guess. And I think I think the show and that impact is what attracted me and kind of set me on a course that eventually, you know, led to where I am today. Okay, so as a as a high school, you did you have that insight then? Like, okay, this feels like a town hall, it's a public place. Or is that looking back? Yeah, I think much more looking, looking back. Looking back. What a cool thought because I've never had that thought that that's a public place of celebration at, that communities have. This is a, a bit of a, I don't know, a, a thread that's not totally related. But I remember thinking are being introduced to this thought that long ago, the largest buildings in, in organizations were churches. And so they were the center of communities. And now it's um, high rises and they're the largest buildings. In, but, the play, but you just introduced a new concept, which is the largest places of gathering are sporting events. Well, you know, I, you need to study the Colosseum in Rome because yeah. I think it was the, the first time there was a building constructed that was really designed to do what sports facilities do today. Mm -hmm. I mean, really, if you go back and look at it, it's fascinating. It, they, there were so many interventions, uh, in inventions there that we carry on today. It was the first place you got a pottery shard to, uh, for entrance. And on that shard was a section row and seat number that, imagine that, you know, we're talking at the Roman Coliseum, right? Yeah. That had never been done before. Uh, drinking fountains, uh, things that had never been conceived of in a public place before that haven't changed, which remarkably haven't changed that much if you fast forward 2,000 years, right? Yeah, and, even the idea of the dome and people, you know, the, the seats stacked up on each other. And, you know, different classes sitting in right. different sections, yeah. uh, maybe not based on their wealth at the time, but on their prestige, uh, probably somewhat based on their wealth. It's really a fascinating study that is so reflective of how we kind of view the industry today. It's really quite shocking. I was fortunate enough to go, I think I, I was there about seven years ago in the Coliseum and just what a remarkable place just to stand in that presence and feel it. But something that um, we don't have is the beasts and, and the animals and, the, you know, right. Like all the livestock that was underneath, which is, I don't know if you've been fortunate enough to see it, but it's almost like a basement. I don't know another way to describe it, like underneath the Coliseum and, when you think about how innovative that culture was. And so this is a nice thread maybe into what you're about to build for the organization here. And so can you talk a little bit about that vision? Believe it or not, uh, San Francisco in its history has never had a world-class sports entertainment facility. Uh, having spent the last bold six years <laughs> of my life trying to get it done in San Francisco, I know why it's, 
it's virtually impossible in the uh, political and social environment of San Francisco to get a project of this magnitude done. And it requires uh, just a relentless pursuit. It requires being fearless. It requires uh, being willing to, willing to pay every bill with not a penny of public money, which is breaking the mold significantly from how other stadiums and arenas get built. I wish I could say there were going to be elements of this that were going to be as innovative as uh, the Romans did. I, I doubt that. I think there's more of an evolution than it is a, a reinvention. So I think you know, on the business side, it's very much reflective of how projects like this will get done in the future because it's as much a real estate development as a arena or stadium. Uh, we're building two office towers. We have 100,000 square feet of retail, frankly, because we need the revenue from those to justify the cost of these incredibly expensive, one-of-a-kind buildings that our home to our sports teams. It's not a formula, I think, that could be replicated in Seattle or, or Milwaukee or most places in the country. San Francisco is at a really unique place in time and in history right now where uh, we can justify the formula that makes it happen here. Okay. And what is the reason to move? I mean, this is, it, as you know, like that's a big deal because you were probably part of the Seattle Supersonics when they closed shop and that was gutting Seattle. And then we see the same thing happen with the Rams in St. Louis and the football side. Like there's a gutting that takes place. Now, I don't imagine that it's such a gutting, but because it's a neighboring city from Oakland to yeah. San Francisco, but to leave a place that has, I don't know, something magical about it, Oracle Arena and the success that you guys have had there. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because I'm curious where the thought came from. And then I'm also going to be curious about what it takes underneath the surface, your moxie, if you will, to get something that big done. First of all, a little history. The Warriors were one of the NBA's original franchises, the Philadelphia Warriors, and they actually moved to San Francisco in the 60s. So San Francisco Warriors were how this team was born okay, cool. in the Bay Area. And over the course of the Warriors' history, they have played in San Francisco, in Oakland, even a year in San Jose, which are the three, you know, kind of anchors of the Bay Area. Um, so the team has played in, throughout the Bay Area. And, you know, as we have a new ownership group the last seven years who bought this team are looking for how you set yourself up for success in the long term, Oracle Arena, we adore. It's a wonderful environment once you're in your seat. It's the oldest arena in the NBA. It was built before Madison Square Garden. It's not the type of facility that long-term can generate the revenues you need to be competitive. So we knew we had to have a new arena. Where that was going to be was another story. And, you know, we felt that the greatest opportunity for the franchise was going to be in San Francisco. We're moving eight miles. We're, right. we're yeah. not moving to it's another not, state. We're yeah. not moving, you know, even elsewhere in the region. We're moving a different city eight miles away. And I, I think it was a big dream because there's no land in San Francisco. And in fact, our first invitation by Mayor Lee was to build over piers into San Francisco Bay on Piers 3032. And that actually, when we had our news conference five years ago, that was the announced plan. We were going to build on Piers 3032. You know, we envisioned the Sydney Opera House in the Bay in San Francisco. To make a very long story really short, we got caught up in 
controversy over another waterfront development project, which really crystallized the opposition to waterfront development in San Francisco. And we were... Environmental conditions? uh, More just quality of life. Like, do we we want to build more on the waterfront? Yeah, Uh, okay. And, you know, what's the waterfront's purpose in San Francisco? And uh, we were about to go to the ballot to ask voters that when we got a phone call from Mark Benioff, the chairman of Salesforce.com, said, you know, I've got four city blocks in Mission Bay. That <laughs> He's I got have, a lot of blocks of, of land that well, he owns. I've, yeah. I, it was to be their corporate headquarters. I've, oh, okay. I was fully entitled, uh, designed, ready to put a shovel in the ground, and they put the brakes on it. He says, we've outgrown it. So if you're willing to handsomely uh, uh, give me a return on that investment by buying those uh, 11 acres, uh, it will it will do away with a lot of the waterfront issues that you have today. And we, frankly, reluctantly agreed because we, we envisioned something quite magnificent over the water. Uh, this is 200 feet from the water. Uh, I think it'll be equally magnificent. But, you know, when you have an idea in your head and when you have a dream in your head, it's hard to change the dream. Okay. My hair just stood up. So I measure success throughout my day of how many times my hair stands up. And just as a quick thought on that, that's the science of awe, you know, the applied science of awe. And to have that means that there's a, there's some grand idea, but also like deeply connected to it in the present moment. And for you to say that it's really hard to give up a dream, can you pull on that a little bit more? Like what, what does that mean to you? Cause you said it like very clearly. And you, and you just have been living it the last maybe five, six years during this process. So what does that mean to you? Because I, I, a thousand percent will nod my head to it. And I think there's like three parts to it. There's the having the dream, there's the commitment to the dream, and there's the challenge of the dream, right? And, and you're saying it's hard to give up the challenge of the dream. So can you pull on that just a little bit? Well, I think you said it very well. <clears throat> we, you know, first, the big idea was San Francisco because no one really thought uh, there have been many attempts in the past to, to get something done in San Francisco to build an arena, always fallen by the wayside. I, uh, I hate when I do this. I have to interrupt. What made you think you could do that? It seemed like the right collection of people, honestly. Our ownership group is comprised of about 20 individuals, but two really control the management of the ownership group. One is a venture capitalist by the name of Joe Lacob. And his entire life has been spent trying to find a new idea and investing enough in it to bring it to fruition when other people didn't see the opportunity. So very much in his DNA to try to find an idea and then believe that through good management and hard work and, and it being the right idea, you'd be able to create something really incredibly valuable. His bookend in ownership is a guy by the name of Peter Goober. Uh, and Peter's background is in the entertainment business, chairman of Sony Pictures, chairman of Columbia, uh, Casablanca Records, uh, 50 Academy Award nominations, uh, produced, Legend. produced movies yeah, like, yeah. you know, Rain Man, The Color Purple, yeah. Batman, yeah. you know, to go to his office is a shrine to he's a, he's a story the industry. Teller. But yeah. he also, he, throughout his whole career, uh, at one point was the biggest owner of minor league baseball franchises too. He loved sports and saw live entertainment as a uh, continuum between, you know, what we think of as, 
you know, music or movies, but also live sports is live entertainment. And so is right in his wheelhouse in terms of creating drama that people respond to and would, would want to have part of their life. And it's an amazingly powerful combination. And when I sat down with them for the first time to talk about whether or not they would want me to come to work here or I would want to come to work here, they laid out a vision of, of just this idea, just we think we can do this. We actually think we could move to San Francisco. And that, to me, was the biggest lever to, to pull to decide this is where I wanted to cast my fate because, you know, when you're in an industry like this forever, if you're incredibly lucky once in your career, you get the opportunity to take virtually everything you've ever learned about your industry and create this physical form that's going to live on for decades and decades and decades and do it differently than anyone's ever done and hopefully do it in your mind better than anyone's ever done. Mm -hmm. And it's just an extraordinary challenge to be able to do that. And then again, we met Mayor Lee, uh, the new mayor of San Francisco at the time. And he and I uh, actually fell in love with the same Sonics teams. He went to Franklin High School in Seattle. We're exactly the same age. I went to Queen Anne High School. And he, his idea was that this could be his legacy to bring an NBA team back to San Francisco. And there are these, uh, this, these ridiculous piers that have, been, uh, that have sat unused for decades on the waterfront in San Francisco that are big enough to, to, to hold an arena. God knows what's under them. Heaven knows what it would have cost, what other challenges we would have had, not even before we got to the politics. But that was taking an idea and then upping it. Okay, in terms of what the vision could be. And if you could really create this amazing facility, in effect, floating in San Francisco Bay, that would be uh, a center for for sports and entertainment in the Bay Area for decades. That was a pretty compelling idea. Okay, so there's something about big ideas and compelling, you know, to use your word, compelling ideas that get you excited, right? Like most people. But there's a there's a precipice for many of us where the big idea stays a dream and that's a nice story we get to tell ourselves and because there's some sort of risk whether it's a sweat equity or financial risk or an emotional risk to go for it and you did just that you went for it and in many ways have become a point person for building the san francisco experience so what is it that allowed you once you had the dream conceived to say, okay, now I actually want to take that risk and put some work in. You said the team. What else was about your makeup that allowed you to do that? For me, I think you have to go back a couple layers below okay. that because yeah, cool. I think uh, I've always been attracted to really underperforming high potential opportunities. Okay. So, so you, you know, I think you, the starting you, point is actually now, very important yeah, in this. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'm going to put a pin in that. Let's come back to that. Okay. okay. Good. Let's keep going. Yeah. Please. This is the, the, the Warriors franchise at the time I got here had missed the playoffs 16 out of 17 years. That's in a league where over half the teams make the playoffs every season. It's virtually impossible to set out to accomplish the, what the Warriors had done in terms of futility. So, you know, this was a horribly underperforming organization, horribly underperforming at every level. And at the same time, you look at the opportunity and say, 
look at the market this is in. Look at the fan support this team has had, despite the fact they've never had a winning product on the floor. You look at the economic vibrancy of the Bay Area, the thought leadership in the Bay Area, and you say, I'm sorry, but if you get this in the right ownership and management hands, this should stand toe-to-toe with any franchise, not just in the NBA, any franchise in sports. And, you know, that's not dissimilar to, you know, how I looked at the NBA when I got there. Um, It was a horrible business organization. There was nothing, you know, I got there in 1982. Uh, There was talk about, more talk about franchises going out of business than there was about expansion. Uh, It was the first league widely believed to have drug use amongst its players that was really hurting the product. It was three quarters black and Sports Illustrated very matter-of-factly said that, you know, it's really impossible to envision how America would embrace a sport where three quarters of the athletes are African-American. And I love the NBA. And, uh, you know, there I ran into another guy named David Stern before he was commissioner who actually hired me. Um, and a bunch of other young people who actually believed that we could do something incredible with a product that had been so undervalued. So, so to me, going back to your question, uh, where we were as a franchise, the Warriors, uh, at seven years ago, at that time, were pretty much a laughing stock um, in our industry. So, to me, it it makes it easier to take the big challenge, not not harder. I mean, it's 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 like you know, what do we have to lose if we if we aren't successful? Then we're not going to be any worse than we have been. And if we are successful, there's gigantic upside. So I think you have to go back to kind of the starting place and and, and the mindset of the people who are here that we had a chance to take big bets and and potentially fail, but no one had ever even tried before. So I think, you know, we had enough confidence in ourselves that we didn't know how it was going to turn out, but but we knew that that it we we had all the success factors were out there. We just hadn't been able to harness them in a way that uh, had resulted in success. So ownership didn't significantly change 10 years ago to, to now, say? No, it did. It, it did. did. So, the, the team traded okay. uh, seven years ago, almost eight years ago this coming fall. Uh, that's when Joe Lakeman and Peter Gooper bought the team. The, okay. So that, okay. So then they brought in new blood, so to speak. They yeah. brought in the, the technology geniuses. They brought in the visionaries from the Bay. They brought in their, their peers. Right. Is that okay? Right. And it's a large or, um, ownership structure. There's, it is. there's many owners. Yeah. Right? There's like 20, which, which actually the NBA has legislated out going forward. They really don't want that big an ownership group. They really oh. would like to only see 10 individuals represent an ownership group. Finding mastery is brought to you by Apollo neuro. I am really excited about what Apollo Neuro is building. If you haven't had the chance yet, I highly recommend that you go check out the conversation I had with our co-founder, Dr. David Rabin, on the podcast. It is well worth a listen. Unlike traditional wearables that simply track your biometrics, Apollo's doing it totally differently. Apollo Neuro is designed to actively improve your health by enhancing sleep, relaxation, energy, and focus. So how's it work? Developed by neuroscientists and physicians, Apollo delivers these soothing little vibrations. They call them Apollo vibes that are like music your body can feel. More rapid vibrations help to improve your energy and focus, while the slower vibrations help to promote rest and digest in your body. And the best part for me, they're grounded in good science. Apollo has been tested by thousands of users 
in clinical and real world trials. I would love for you to give it a go. It's making a meaningful difference in my life. And because you're listening to this podcast, you can receive an exclusive 15% off an Apollo wearable. Just head to apolloneuro.com slash findingmastery and use the code findingmastery at checkout. This is an exclusive offer. It's only for us here at Finding Mastery. So be sure to use the code at checkout. Again, that's Apollo, A-P-O-L-L-O, Apollo Neuro, N-E-U-R-O, apolloneuro.com slash findingmastery, or use the code findingmastery at checkout for 15% off your purchase. Finding Mastery is brought to you by Cured. If there's one big rock to get into the container when it comes to dialing in your wellness, one thing that stands out among the rest is sleep. Whether it be improved physical health, mental health, performance, creativity, quality sleep is the gift that keeps on giving. And I'm sure many of you are familiar with the science that supports that. And if you're struggling with sleep or you just want to dial it in a bit further, Cured's Zen formula it just might be a great solution for you. Zen is a nootropic that is formulated by Cure's very own in-house clinical herbalist, and it contains a blend of reishi mushroom, ashwagandha, chamomile, passionflower, and broad-spectrum CBD. That is a powerhouse combination. Zen could be a great little addition to your bedtime routine. They recommend taking it about 45 minutes before hopping into bed to let the reishi and ashwagandha and chamomile and the CBD do their thing. So right now, because you're listening to this podcast, Cured is hooking you up with a great offer. You can try Zen for 20% off when you visit curednutrition.com slash findingmastery and you use the code findingmastery at checkout. That's Cured, C-U-R-E-D, Cured, nutrition.com slash findingmastery and enter the code findingmastery at checkout to save 20%. All right, so then... So then the model was, there's an exciting idea. Wow. It could be legacy. You know, there's something really beautiful that I, I get to be part of building and there's not a whole lot to lose. So let's lay big bets. You know, we've got the resources, we've got the people, uh, we've got an opportunity so that, okay. So now the story makes some sense to me. There's another story on the other side of it, which is now that you've had great success, does, does your model switch that ph philosophical model? And that question is coming from, it's easy to be hungry when let's say you don't have anything now that wasn't the case you guys had a lot you know but you could lay big bets because of your history but what i'm thinking about is the athlete that's early in their career or the business person that's early in their career and they say i'm hungry for gold i'm hungry for whatever i'm hungry to make it i'm hungry for you know to figure this thing out and they just take calculated or wild risks and it works out and then as soon as they win they get the medal they get the crown whatever it is all of a sudden their whole world has changed because they have lost what to be hungry for. So does that resonate at all for it, you? It, or it, I understand it, but mm -hmm. I, I think uh, in the walls of this organization, we have to this point been able to avoid that. One is this gigantic bet we have in the future, which is still, we're going to play two more seasons in Oakland. It's still, you know, not till 2019 when we actually get to this place that we're going to call home, mm -hmm. uh, called Chase Center in San Francisco. But at the same time, our on-court success came, I think, more quickly probably than anyone had uh, could fairly 
uh, anticipate. I, I would recommend to anybody considering buying an NBA team, buy one that already has Steph Curry on the roster because that's a that's actually a very good thing for the future of your business. Not even if you don't know it at the time. He <laughs> yeah, wasn't right. Steph Curry then, yeah. but uh, he's the only player remaining from from uh, mm. when when we got here. Mm. Uh, but that turned out to be a pretty good player to, to build around, but, uh, he, he's on path to be one of the greatest ever period. I, like he's, a, I think he probably already is, but yes, uh, you know, yeah. is that, a, is that an argument that a lot of people are making? I think so. You yeah. know, he's 29. He's just he's reaching yeah. his peak, yeah. uh, for the point guard position. So he should have, you know, another few years. We just signed him to a five-year car about to hopefully sign him to a five-year contract. So, uh, you know, hopefully that's going to continue for quite a while. But the point I was going to make is that when, you know, there were, there were a couple of things that went on when Mark Jackson was coach of this team, the atmosphere in the locker room was the same as the atmosphere I had coming into the business organization, which is you had a, a group of people who came to work every day expecting not to be successful. And that was okay. And everyone got paid. Everyone got a nice vacation. Everyone came back the next year and did it all over again, and the world went on, right? So Mark Jackson came in and really turned upside down the culture of the locker room. You know, and now we actually were going to win. How could that be? You know, we never win. Like, how, how is that going to happen? And, you know, he was successful in doing that over a couple of years. Did you um, bring Mark Jackson in? Was he same uh, he was, time? He was shortly after I came in. He was hired. I, I actually didn't come in with the new ownership group. I came in a year later. A year later, okay. So they they were in one season when they bought the team, uh, fired the coach then. And so so Mark and I got here about the same time. Okay. And he was successful in doing that. Same challenge I had out Side the door we're in the room we're sitting was we had people coming to work every day whether they were selling tickets or selling sponsorships or you know putting on community events or or putting on games they expected an outcome that wasn't good and that had become the comfortable way to do business so you know the challenge there was was in turning that attitude around mark was successful in doing that in our locker room and with our players and you know we really the approach we had here was look here's where we're going my my first day here brought everybody in the room and said here's what we're going to do right uh, number one we're going to rejoin the nba which sounds crazy but this was an operation that really believed like you know we got it we don't need any help from anybody and we have a league that is incredibly uh, helpful between teams, more so than any of the other leagues. It's a whole other topic, but there's a lot to Is this the to sharing learn. of data, the collective sharing Com of data? Complete transparency in all of our business dealings yeah. across all 30 teams. Uh, and, and you already had a bird's eye view coming from the league from the of like what, pe what organizations were doing exactly. from a technology standpoint, sure. from a financial standpoint. So you had a bird's eye view of it as right. well. Yeah. Right. So the idea was, look, here's where we're going. We can do this. If you think we can, you can buy into the vision. Come on, let's go. You're, you're welcome to come along for the ride. If you really don't believe this is going to happen, probably a good time to, you know, part ways. And we probably turned over more than 50% of the staff over the first 18 months. The way I heard that story, your story, was that you said that you said to the group, the, the organization, you brought it, like you brought everyone in and said, here's the vision. I'd, I'd love for you to play that back for me if you could remember some of it. But then you said, we're not firing anybody. And tell me if I have it wrong. We're not firing anybody. 
here's our new expectations. And then, then 50% of it kind of couldn't hang or wanted to leave because they didn't like the vibe of it. Did you go in that order? Yeah. No, that, that was the order. It, it, there were, did end up being firings because people yeah, who would nod and say, I'll come along for the ride and then continue to behave the same behaviors. way they yeah. had behaved. It kind of, you'd reach a point where it was like, you know what, that's just not going to cut it. So why did you do it that way instead of coming in and saying, okay, listen, I'm bringing my crew in. I'm, I'm scouring the, the, the globe and I'm going to find the best in the heads of whatever departments, marketing and whatever. And I'm bringing them in. They understand me and my culture. That, that happens often. In, it does. So how come you didn't go that way? Because what I thought would be really important is if within the group that was already here who had never achieved success and never known success, we could find at least a couple of leaders who, when given the opportunity and, and you know the right resources, could become the success they hadn't been under the prior ownership. And so you thought it was in there and you wanted to pull well, we it out. We wanted to people. find out. Okay. And, and, and the, my feeling was if I could find at least a couple of people in that group that would all of a sudden start to get big wins and be seen by their peers and the others in the organization as now having elevated standing and having big success, getting rewarded for that success, whether it's title or money or whatever it is, there would be a credibility I would have in then doing what you said and going out and then trying to recruit the best of the best in areas where I couldn't find that within the existing organization. Okay. So then that's full because that also matches your philosophy about looking for organizations that are uh, untapped potential. So you do it for or at an organizational level and also at a human level, right? So, okay. What did you shape as the vision when you came in? Well, I told the story of why I was here, right? I'd spent a career in the NBA. I had an opportunity to see, you know, teams that were incredibly well run, teams that weren't well run. Uh, what I thought, you know, were the environmental factors that led to that based on where, where a team was located. And, you know, said what was absolutely true that, that people like me had looked at this franchise for the last 20 years and said, this should be amongst the most successful in professional sports. And it's not, and, but it's not because we're in the wrong market. It's not because there isn't enough disposable income. It's not because there's not a big enough corporate base. It's not because there isn't enough fan affinity to the team. It's just it hasn't been organized in a way that that would create the success that that those factors should have provided. So it was just an analysis of the opportunity and saying it's all here. You just got to believe it's all here and you got to commit to the process of putting those pieces together in a way that's going to yield a very different result than what has historically happened. Do you call that culture when you said it wasn't organized? It, it to me it I've got two questions. One is, do you see it as puzzle pieces or do you see it more as a tapestry, like weaving pieces together? Or are there literally, uh, you know, particular pieces that have to fit in particular spaces? It's a really simple business. <laughs> cool. Yeah, cool. It's like embarrassing how simple this business is and in what leads you to financial success. Uh, uh, you know, ticket sales is the biggest driver of profitability in the NBA. So it's the biggest source of revenue for every team. Not true in the other leagues. So it's different. Mm -hmm. They all look alike. They're all very different. Yeah. Okay. Uh, broadcasting and sponsorship is the second piece. Financially, 
The rest of it is an afterthought. Not an afterthought, but a rounding error, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, then there are the parts of the organization that define how you're, how you're perceived, uh, both internally to your internal constituents and to the community at large. And sports teams play this incredibly important part in the culture of uh, community and have an opportunity so far beyond their economic size to influence the quality of life in communities and how people feel about where they live. And those are just as important as the revenue drivers, but oftentimes there's a big disconnect in sports organizations between the revenue generators and those who are responsible for defining kind of the DNA of the organization as perceived internally as well as externally. And you have to value all of them equally when you're in the room with peers, right? It, yes, you know, yes, you're going to contribute more to the dollar bottom line because you're selling big number sponsorships, but a great community event uh, in San Jose pays dividends that, while they're not monetary, are equally valuable in defining the, the culture of the organization and the perception of the organization, which is going to allow those who are selling on the, you know, on the revenue side to do better than they would if you didn't do those things. And, you know, that's a struggle that every sports organization has on trying to, to get people to believe and understand there, there is such value to both. By the way, all those people in our community relations group really understand it's great when we're driving our revenue goals to a place where we can afford better players and a better team, and it reflects on the raises that they get as much as the raises that the people who are selling get. But, but you can't operate a sports organization in silos. You have to have a group of people who are willing to engage across departments, at least at the, at the senior management level, who, who drew, truly believe in their hearts, what I said is true, and operate day to day with that kind of respect and attitude in the organization that makes everyone feel like a valued member, whether or not you're, you're driving, you're selling you know, season tickets or you're working for a community foundation. How do you make people feel valued? If we drop it right down to the individual level, I've got this thought in my head. Total Wolf is the owner of Mercedes Formula One and the managing director. And he says that he did something very similar when he came on as the new executive uh, manager as well as the owner and gave this wonderful speech to the entire organization. At the end of his speech, everyone's clear in the room and he's Austrian and, and there was an engineer there and they bring in the brightest minds, like the brightest minds across the world, uh, Cambridge and you know um, Princeton and Harvard engineers that come work for Mercedes Formula One. And one very smart, respectable engineer said, those are nice words. Let's see if you can make them happen. So I'm imagining people heard you and they're like, this is great. Oh, a little scary because there's change coming and I'm not sure about change, but okay. How did you make it so that people felt valued? I I literally mean like get into the hearts and the minds of people that they do have value when they've been in an organization that has not been winning. You know, for me, uh, I, I think the people that you choose, number one, you have to choose people uh, who, who fit the mold that I'm describing, or at least have the potential to do that. I, every week, we, I sit for two hours with our senior management team, and it's not, you know, it's all those areas of the company that, that 
you know, contribute to our success. And, you know, I, I think it starts with me on how I, how they see my interaction with those areas. Uh, and then, you know, we, we do senior management retreats where, you know, we're very honest with each other if there's, you know, the, the, it's not a perfect world, right? And we have different personalities who are involved and some people get their feelings hurt or don't feel as respected and try to create an atmosphere where we can talk about that and, and, and not talk about it at the water cooler. We talk about it to each other. And I think, you know, more often than not, we're successful at doing that. And frankly, when there's somebody who can't get their arms around that over time, uh, they're kind of self-selected out, uh, in terms of, of, of being here, because I think, you know, you, you learn quickly here what's expected in terms of your interaction with your peers. And, you know, you're called on the carpet, in effect, by your peers, not just by me, when that interaction isn't what it's supposed to be. And so it, does that mean consistency? Like yeah, when you say one thing and true. act differently depending on the circumstances? Yeah. And, yeah. and, you know, that, I mean, that starts with me. That starts yeah. with leadership. Uh, we have a mutual friend who said to me that you're a world class communicator. What, is, what does that mean? Honestly, what I think it means is that you listen really, really well. Because I think people who aren't good communicators are bad listeners. Um, and I think that, you know, I don't ever think I'm the smartest guy in the room on any particular topic. I do think if I'm getting the right opinions from people who are smarter than me in that particular uh, on that particular subject, I'm, I'm pretty good at making the right decision. But I think that it comes from being able to, to listen and to, to not only hear the facts, but to understand why somebody's feeling the way that they are. And I, I think that then you're able to respond in a way in your communication, your outgoing communication that, someone can accept because you've actually heard what they said, not, not just got the facts right. Okay. So when you listen, you're listening for the storyline and then you're also listening for the emotions or the context underneath of it. So how do you do that second part? <laughs> practice, practice, practice. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I think, you know, this is, this is going 180 degrees the other direction. I think part of it is who I was growing up. I was gay, right? And nobody knew I was gay. At what and age did you have that insight? I think probably six or seven. Whoa. Uh, yeah, that's really early. Not, yeah. not, not yeah. in those words, not thought about that way, but knew there was something different about How me. How did you know? That's phenomenal. I just knew. And what, I, what, I think is that, you, what does that mean? I just well, knew. It just, it, well, you, you knew that the attractions you had in your life were not the ones that you saw on TV. Uh, ah, there you go. And, and, or in any behavior that was demonstrated by the most important people in the world around you or people that were looked up to or anything like that. And I think it makes you ultra sensitive to words and to trying to understand things because things for me didn't add up in a lot of ways. I knew how I wanted to be, but I, that wasn't who I was at the moment. I was trying to learn what was what was different about people that could uh, 
could help me get closer to what I thought I wanted to be when I was a kid who did, you know, no kid wants to be gay. No kid, every kid wants to be accepted. Every kid wants to be loved by their parents. And those things were all in conflict with me. So I think it, it kind of created a sense of uh, awareness for me personally that, you know, words became really important. I became much more interested in people who were different than me than people who were the same as me. So, you know, the most influential people in my life are the people who are probably the most different from me because I felt like I learned the most. Not that I was going to be like them, but that I took something away from that relationship that made me better understand other people. Um, so I, it's, it's, it's a little, you know, it's a little wishy-washy philosophical, but I do think, uh, I do think there was some value to that. I think I, I became a really good listener. I became very sensitive to trying to understand how other people were feeling and why they were feeling that way and feeling there was maybe a path for me to be different than I felt oh, cool. I was. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's all pretty complicated. Finding Mastery is brought to you by AG1. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you know what a big supporter I am of AG1. And it's almost been for a decade now. So I love what they're doing. I, it's something I drink just about every day. And part of their marketing slogan is that it's a nutritional insurance program. And like, I just, I love that. That's the way it feels for me. And that's because each serving of AG1 delivers a dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and so much more. It is a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. I like to take it first thing in the morning, which is also recommended for optimal nutrient absorption. And so what I do is I just fill up my shaker, add some cold water, a scoop of AG1, and a little squeeze of lemon. I shake it up, and I'm ready to go. Or if I'm in a rush or you know I'm, I'm ripping and running on the road, I just grab an AG1 travel pack to take with me. I feel great after drinking it, not only because of the nutritional insurance idea, but there's just a, there's a sustenance that happens when I drink it. And I love recommending it to friends and family because I know AG1 is formulated with science-informed rigor and the highest quality in mind. AG1 is a supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily. And that's why I've loved partnering with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, I want to encourage you to give AG1 a try and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and also get five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash findingmastery. Again, that's drinkag1.com slash findingmastery. Finding Mastery is brought to you by AquaTrue. We all know how important hydration is to performance and recovery and well-being. But it's not just about how much you drink. The quality of your water plays a big role. And if you're like me and you don't fully trust tap water, and I think for good reason, research by the Environmental Working Group has shown that three out of four homes in the U.S. have harmful contaminants in tap water. That's why I'm really excited to introduce AquaTrue. Their purifiers use a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process, and their countertop purifiers remove 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters. It's incredible. I can literally taste the difference in my water. Plus, the filters are affordable and long-lasting. Just one set of filters from their classic purifier makes the equivalent of 4,500 bottles of water. That adds up to less than three cents per bottle. It feels great to know that all at once, I'm saving money, 
getting the highest quality water for the Fonny Mastery team, and helping make a positive impact on the environment by eliminating single-use plastics all the way around. AquaTrue comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, and it even makes a great gift. And right now, because you're a Finding Mastery listener, you receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier. So just go to AquaTrue.com. You spell it A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com and enter the code FINDINGMASTERY at checkout. Again, that's AquaTrue.com. Enter the Finding Mastery code at checkout to receive 20% off any purifier that you buy there. When did you start dating men? Like, when did that happen? Uh, well, you're going to have to find dating men. Uh, you know, I, I always had that attraction, but I didn't didn't act on it, obviously. Not obviously. I, you know, it, it was had to be secretive and be, you know, compartmentalized outside of the rest of my life, you know, in my even teen, college, and beyond years. You okay. know, it wasn't... Yeah. Yeah. You know, there just was nobody out there that I could see who I admired, who was a role model for me to say, wow, you could actually be in sports, you could be gay, you could be successful, and you could have a career. Like, there's, there was nobody out there. And, you know, I didn't have that person. So it, it was a, that was a big barrier for me to publicly come out because I just didn't know how it would affect my my really career. It, it wasn't about me, you know, about my personal life. My, my family had always been incredibly supportive once we finally had the big discussion. And I had a great group of friends, but, you know, my work life was, was, a, was a separate thing from that. And the two never crossed. And, you know, that, that's, a, that's a lot to carry uh, as a person. Yeah. And so the thing, if it seems to me, the thing underneath the storyline for you, if we follow the methodology we talked about is alignment, who I, who I was and who I was presenting to be were off. They were misaligned or separated in some way. And you're looking for alignment. And would you say from pain is why people change and being uncomfortable is why people grow. So was, did this come from pain for you? The split in alignment was that a painful experience or just uncomfortable uh initially just uncomfortable and then it became at you know there were events in my life that made it painful yeah Um, but but you know it and and it wasn't that like in 17 years of going to nba holiday parties i never asked a girlfriend to come with me to kind of you know i'll go by myself you know it wasn't that i was constructing anything other than you know it I never presented in a in a uh, unauthentic way uh, in my work life. But I not, just but not alignment. But it wasn't a complete yeah. way. Yeah, that's um, that, there you go. Yeah. So it, it it's, was, it's like not telling a lie. I wasn't telling a lie, but I wasn't telling the truth, right? Yeah, right. something. Okay, right. yeah. Right. And then was it harder to tell your family, or was it harder to tell? I don't know who you tell in business world. Do you tell the media first, or you tell like the ownership? Like, who do you? What does that mean in business to? to do that. Well, you know, your family was the biggest, hardest thing for me, but it was a much younger age. Cause I, yeah. as I said, every, you know, I just wanted my, I, I love my parents and I wanted them to love me. And I was afraid that this wouldn't be consistent with that and would change the way they would feel about me. And, you know, I'll tell you exactly the, the funny story. I'm, I'm, uh, have you ever tried to wallpaper? <laughs> I have. 
It's so hard. It's really it's hard impossible to get to get the yeah. lines. No, you like, can't. Do it. It's get, impossible. Yeah, with all the glue and right. Yeah. My mm-hmm. mother was a wallpapering genius. Okay, so <laughs> she was over at my. But well, this is her profession, or she just no, was no, a no. wizard she in the house. Was you know, <laughs> yeah. okay. she could have built a house. She was so good. Um, but but wallpapering was one of her specialties, and I had this tiny little apartment in Seattle, my first apartment, and she came over to help me wallpaper the bathroom and. You know, I know she, I was 26 years old. One of the things she, she'd been thinking about how this was going to get asked forever. Right. And so finally in the midst of wallpapering, her line was, uh, so like your father and I were wondering, um, <laughs> do you have like any trouble relating to women? And I, I can imagine how much rehearsal went into that. And, uh, what, what, like, ha- what happened no, for no, you? No, no, Are you so, that, like, you, that's you so ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. I've had girlfriends, you know, I've had girlfriends, blah, 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 blah. And then by the end of the day, we're hugging and crying and, you know, and Did then she ask again. Or like yeah, the, I mean, eventually yeah. it was like, yeah, 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 that's the story, right? Okay, and, yeah. But then, of course, the next day, you know, my mother and father have to come over for the family meeting and sit in my <laughs> living room on the sofa horribly uncomfortably. And they were just had more questions like, well, why did you ever did what did we ever do that would make you think that this would, you know, change how we felt about you? And I didn't really have a good explanation for that other than, you know, I just had never seen them interact or talk about it or I, I didn't know why. And she said, well, you know, your uncle, your uncle Bob is gay. It's like, well, that would have been good information to have. I mean, this was no, my, you uh, didn't know that dad's brother who was a doctor in San Francisco, the coolest guy in the world, uh, traveled the world. I used to go, you know, spend a week in the summer with them in his beautiful house in Marin. God, that's with, phenomenal. The stories we make up yeah. about like our experience, like what other people are going to think of us can be wildly wrong when your dad had a brother who was beloved. He was a, he was yeah. everyone's favorite relative. My parents loved him. If I'd yeah. only like you know that would have been helpful. How did you know? No clue. No clue. No clue. So I, I he know. was he was he was open about his preference, but no he, no no. Oh, Not he never. wasn't. No, oh, never. There you go. No. Okay. No, never. Very different time. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. he okay. would be eighty nine or 90 today and uh, it actually married a woman later in his life who had been his bridge partner she lost her husband they ended up being the most glamorous couple i think in san francisco and and uh you know i i i never even crossed my mind Uh, so 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 that was that was you know a gigantic relief business-wise completely different um you know i had uh i reached the point you know, in 2011, where I made up my mind, we can talk if you want about what led up to that, where, you know, I, I, it was time. I needed to, like, bring my work life uh, in, and my personal life together. And I didn't, I, I figured I could go talk to the people I work with. I was ready to do that. Um, it was, uh, but I had a friend uh, named Dan Cloris in New York City who, uh, was a media guru, uh, had run the biggest PR firm there for a while. We'd become friends through my work at the NBA. So I asked him to dinner. I, I, it's going to look great in the movie. It was a snowy night on the Upper East Side in New York City, and we sat down at the dinner table and said, Dan, like, so what do I do? here's the story. Yeah. Like, I'm so much too close to it. I need your opinion. Like, is is this is something I can take care of. I can talk to the people I work with, I can, and, and that's fine with me. But is there something more to be gained if I do this in a very different way? Okay. Okay. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. This is, this is great because mom asked you and you said, no, 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 no. And then she probably asked you again in another way, or you 
went back to wallpapering with awkward <laughs> silence and he said, okay, mom, right? And see, okay, so then, okay, but the first hesitation there was to not say it, but you really wanted to. You really wanted mom and dad to know, it, right? It, if it was going to be accepted, I was petrified it Petri- wouldn't be accepted. R- right, okay, so then, okay, because the same thing is holding true for the business. Like, okay, I can tell my relationships with people, but I was too close to it. The PR idea was like, how is this going to affect my global repetition? Now, in that moment, in the Upper East Side, you said East Side, right? In a snowy, snowy evening. If he would have said, don't do it, or if he would have said, you'll be fine. No, he, what, what I was asking is, should I just deal with it one-on-one with all the people that are around me? Okay, so you were that, definitely... I was fine with that. That'll be... That was plan A. That was my plan like a. Did this feel like a larger courage act than the with your family? Was it the same? Not at that point. Not, no, 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 okay. Not at that point. Because I, I want to hear the story, but I also want to know about courage, right? To live and express one's authentic truth is really hard, yeah. especially, and that, that thought, what I just, that mouthful of, of words I just said is like at right at the center of me, like to know yourself and to authentically express yourself requires a commitment to an, uh, an incredible swath of mental skills. It, none withstanding insight and awareness, but then the mental skills to have the courage to act on it. And that's the same for athletes as well. They've got this incredible craft that they've developed, but then when the lights turn on, some people shrink access to the craft and they can't get it, right? And we call it choking or whatever, poor performance, but it's really they can't access it. For the rest of us who don't have the craft of Steph Curry, right, or, or whomever in the NBA, our craft is is being authentically ourselves. Like that's it, whether it's in business or it's in um, family relationships, can we be ourselves? Okay, so we're, you're at that precipice and I wanna, I wanna get underneath the surface, but I wanna hear the story as well to see how, how you managed the experience of sharing. So, you know, do I take care of this one-on-one with everyone or Dan, is there something bigger here that could be done that would be more important than me just feeling better about myself. And, uh, he calls me Ricky. He just looked across the dinner table and said, Ricky, he's got a crazy voice. You know, if you're willing to do this, uh, I one, number one, I'd like to help. I'd like to help craft this with you. And number two, I think it's page a one New York times. Oh, so go, that, go, go big. Yeah. That yeah. was my, no, that the story is that big. If you're willing to tell it publicly, the story is that big. And that's what I describe as my oh shit moment because yeah. it was kind of like, whoa, that's so you didn't big. see the magnitude, not, not from no. my seat. Yeah, I needed right, that, yeah. which is why he was there. I was asking him to give me a perspective Look, got that, my hair to stand that up I, again. that I, I couldn't it. have Yeah, yeah. with it being my life. Okay. So for, is this the first um, executive in a major sport? Yes. And still the only, St- the only, yeah. do you think I'm, that that is a function of authenticity? Like you're, you literally are the only gay no. man or no, you certainly know otherwise. Oh, right? you know, otherwise. Yeah. And they just, they're not comfortable yet. They didn't have some sort of internal mechanism or social support system to do yeah. what you've done. Yeah. And you know, before I make myself out to be mother Teresa here, you also have to put, <laughs> you know, where I was yeah. in my career. Like I had really accomplished at that you had point, success. my, my fear was my career. And at that point I was president of an NBA basketball team, Phoenix Suns. Like 
that was that was my ultimate and a successful hope. team. Yeah, yeah. Great I mean, team. terrific. During your heyday, or yeah. during that time, it yeah. was a heyday for them. Yeah. yeah. So you know, I, I had much, I had much less career at risk at that point in my life than I would have if I had you know taken this step when I was a thirty year old. So you know, in fairness, you know, yes, totally it was. Yeah. It was you know the experience was quite overwhelming, but. At that time, you know, what was the worst that was going to happen? Was somebody going to fire me because of that? Probably not. Um, does that limit other things I might do? I didn't know. But it wasn't like, you know, I had a 30-year horizon going forward in my industry that that could be affected by that. And I don't hear in any of your capturing of the story that I wanted to do something for a community that feels oppressed. It fe like it, or I want to do it because it was going to make the New York times. Like it, it doesn't sound like that's part of your, um, motivation. Well, as we talked that night and, uh, that Dan, Dan Cloris connected me with another Dan, Dan Barry, who's a Pulitzer prize winning, uh, reporter for the New York times. Um, in the conversations that then followed and deciding if and how this would take form, uh, it became pretty clear to me at that point that I could be that person I described you as never having had, right? That, yeah, that I could yeah. be that person who others who were in my industry could look at and say, wow, that could, that actually could turn out. Okay. I wish I'd had that. I mean, if I'd had that, my path might've been much different, but that didn't exist, uh, in my life. And the thought that maybe I could be that person, for others, uh, became a really compelling reason to kind of follow through on the plan that would eventually end up with a story on the front page of New York Times. So there's that thought underneath many great movements, if you will, that, and even success in sport and otherwise is like, it's important to be part of something larger than yourself, whether that's a spiritual framework or that's a legacy framework, or there's something does does this, did this do that for you? It did. Yeah. yeah. No, it, okay. I didn't know how it would turn out. Uh, it has turned out that way. Mm -hmm. Um, that was the hope as we kind of went down this path that it would turn out that way. But, um, it certainly was no sure thing that, that this would have ended up being a, the right idea. I mean, I went, went to, um, my mother, uh, was still alive, but had been, uh, had lung cancer at the time. I didn't know how much longer she had to live. And, she was, before I had this conversation, I went to her and just said, look, you know, I'm ready to do this, but if this will cause you, you know, any embarrassment with your friends, if you're concerned about family, then it's not that big a deal. I can, I can deal with it a different way. And she was great. She was just like, oh, I'll go for it. You know, I think it'd be awesome. I don't know whether she really meant it or not, but she said the right things a mother should say in that, yeah. uh, in that situation. So, uh. And we can continue the story if you want. I mean, we... Oh, yeah. No, we, this we, is like groundbreaking. No, no, I mean, no, this but, is the essence of it. So yeah. uh, this guy, Dan Berry, this reporter from the New York Times, came out to Phoenix where I was living. And we, we spent uh, a couple days together and hatched uh, a plan. Because if you're really good at doing what you do in my job in our industry, you're really not well known. 
You know, there are people who are well-known who are presidents of teams, but it's usually because they have a miscalculation about what is people, what fans really want. They really care about your players and your coaches and how your team performs. They really don't care about the guy in the suit uh, in the office who's kind of the engine behind it if you're doing your job right. that That's my point of view. There are others who want to be a big part of the show. That's just not who I am. So, like, nobody knew who I was, right? on a national level like nobody knew who I was so as we talked about it we said you know the good the, the interesting thing could be you've been exposed to and become friends with some of the most famous people who are in the industry that everyone knows so whether that's Bill Russell or it's David Stern or it's you know Steve Nash or it's whoever these are your friends like what if they told the story what if what if really it was their words that told the story instead of necessarily your words. And people will pay attention because these are people that everybody knows if you're interested in sports. So that that's the path that we went down. You know, the hard part for me, of course, then was I had to meet with each of these people and ask did if they, they would they already participate. Knew? They didn't know. None well, of them knew. whether they knew or not, we never had the it discussion. It wasn't the discussion, yeah. Okay. So, you know, the first one was Bill Russell. So Legend. flew up to yeah. Seattle. He lives on Mercer Island and uh, just drove my rental car to his house and knocked on the door. And I'll never forget, you know, that door swinging open. And here's this giant of a man wearing his Boston Celtics hat and... You know, we're, we are great friends. It goes back to our time together at the Sonics. I was white boy down the hall for a long time before he actually knew my name, but, uh, (laughs) we've remained friends forever for whatever reason, right? We've been very close friends and he brought me into his little study and he sat in one chair and I sat in another and between us was a little table with a, a framed picture of Barack Obama saying, you know, thanks Bill for being my inspiration. Nothing intimidating about this setting at all for me. Right. So now did he know what this meeting was about? No. Okay. You said, I no. want to talk to you about I something. I just need to chat. Yeah. Okay. And I said, you know, here's the story. I'm gay. Um, I'm going to, I'm wondering if you would talk to a reporter from the New York times, Bill Russell hates reporters, hates talking to reporters. What an ask. I mean, uh, talk about And like, it was like, yeah, 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 I'll do that. And night, then that was it. And two hours later, I left after we'd had big laughs about a hundred things that had happened in our past and, you know, just talk like old friends. But So you was, shared the way that you were going to roll it out and his part piece in it. If he would consider being if a part would consider, of it. If he would consider, yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah, and what? Why? Why would he do that? For your love, uh, or for like? I, I what it think because he truly cared about me. Yeah, you know, and he and he uh, he's he's been a kind of a social justice guy his whole life for sure. You know, yeah. historically. Yeah. Um, so I think you know I think it resonated with him a little bit, especially when it was a friend. I would not if it hadn't been a friend, but uh, okay. Yeah. You know, then that was a conversation that I ended up you know, repeating in hilarious ways with the commissioner of the NBA, David Stern, or our MVP point guard, Steve Nash, or others that, you know, ended up agreeing to be a part of it. And then I was blessed by having this, you know, amazing writer write this amazing story that, uh, you know, ended up on the front page of the New York Times. Did you have any buyer's remorse? No. Well, I, I was prepared, you know, mentally, like, so when this all happens... 
what's the outcome, right? And my expected outcome was, look, there are going to be some jerks out there, right? There's going to be, I don't know what percent, 10% of people who decide they want to be nasty to me, and I think 90% will be great. Um, the remarkable thing about it, and uh, <laughs> so the story was going to post uh, about noon on uh I forget what day of the week it was, a weekend. Uh, I think it was Sunday for Monday. And uh, my partner and I got on a plane at SFO, and we're going to fly to New York because part of this was going to be a whole media tour that would take place as uh, a result of the story appearing in the Times. And in those days, way back in 2011, well, number one, before I took off, I had made a list of about, a hundred people that I wanted to say to give, you know, unfortunately like the same email, like, by the way, here's what's going to happen today. I'm about to get on an airplane, uh, 2011, no Wi-Fi. So, uh, just before we boarded, I, you know, hit send and then got on an airplane and spent the next five hours wondering how my life will have changed by the time I landed in New York city. How did you manage that? I'm smiling because I can, I there can was, imagine. there was wine involved. Um, but it was one of the most surreal experiences because, you know, somewhere over Kansas, I knew that, uh, this story had posted on the New York times website. And by the time we landed, I just kind of took a deep breath, picked up my Blackberry, uh, turned it on, and it, I, I, I think it came as close to exploding as I've ever seen. I mean, literally hundreds, you know, of emails. <laughs> did, that, did you ever have the thought that maybe no one cares? Like, what if I don't get any texts or, or, or emails? Did you not have that thought? I guess I didn't have that thought <laughs> you, you I, at that point. Yeah, I, yeah. I thought there might be a response. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Okay, what's the takeaways for you about this part of your life? Well, the takeaways are are re were really defined by those next that next week of my life because uh, that reaction that I was prepared for was completely different than I expected. Uh, it doesn't even sound realistic. I actually printed out and have on a shelf binders full of these emails. So people who took the time to actually find my email address and send me something, thousands of emails. Um, Did you just keep the positive ones? Uh, I did just keep the positive ones. The reason is I never got a negative one. Come on. Or someone, I, I know it doesn't it. even sound realistic. <laughs> it doesn't wonderful. even sound possible. But for anyone who took the time to find an email address and write something to me or write a letter, actually yeah. people still wrote letters in 2011, <laughs> um, you know, and, and the ones you probably would expect, you know, from people you worked with your whole life and just couldn't have been nicer. But all the people I didn't know, that was the impact. It was, you know, the parents, the kids. This is phenomenal because you're in a unique position as the president of an organization who, like you said earlier, most people don't know who the presidents are, right? If they're doing their job. And then, but you've got this unique experience about what it's like to read media on you as your athletes do. And so I've, I've got a pretty strong point of view that I think most athletes that I know are barely or not at all qualified to be on social media because it is so overwhelming and noisy and uh, emotionally charging to see what somebody has to think about you that's negative. So can you, 
can you th- talk about that in any way? Like, imagine if you were 21. Yeah. You know, like your your position on social media or your thoughts about it. Yeah, and again, point of reference. You know, in 2011, nobody was tweeting, so right, that's right. I didn't yeah. have to deal. I didn't have to deal with that. Yeah, you got ahead um, of that for sure. Uh, but I, listen, I'd been a you know the subject of media discourse my whole life, just based on the industry that I was in and 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 what. So I, you know, I I was comfortable in that world and wasn't uh, you know knew the good and bad that comes along with that you know i'm not a big social media guy now uh we have a whole department that that takes care of that in a better way than i do i it's just not me kind of at this stage of my life i'm i'm not doing a lot of it i do think it's completely the whole you know i go back to when i was uh you know ball kid at the sonics i learned so much from that experience of doing that because i was the guy who opened the locker room door after the game was over for the five maybe media people that were covering the team in those days home and road um and you look at the media scrutiny that athletes are under today it's not it's a completely different world and it's so much more difficult for athletes today to navigate their way through that uh and the relationship of the media to athletes is so different today than it was, you know, in the 60s, 70s, uh, where where reporters' livelihoods depended upon the relationships with with the athletes, and they took care of each other. They didn't talk about the bad stuff, and they glorified the good stuff, and it was that's just the way the the interaction worked. And I was, I was a part of all that and got to see, you know, coaches and players and how they interact and trainers and, you know, things that most people never get exposed to. And I was doing it as a fly on the wall, just as an observer, not in the interaction itself, which was incredibly valuable, but it's so difficult today for athletes to, you know, I, we watched what Kevin Durant went through last year when he, uh, when he changed teams, uh, and, and, you know, actually got to choose where he went to work. Unlike other Americans, I guess they're not supposed to be able to do that. I don't know. Uh, uh, but he, you know, when he went through that and what he, what he endured the entire year, uh, social media wise of the venom that came back to him for having, you know, left his, his team and, and joined, a. already a championship caliber team is amazing and his poise and and ability to frankly not react to to most of that uh was his greatest sign of maturity i think because it would have been much easier for him to tit for tat fire back on on the attacks that he had but i think that that today you really have to pick and choose if you're a high profile athlete when and how to engage in a way uh, and always think two steps ahead in terms of, do I really want to put that out there? And if I do potentially what comes back and I think, I think that's a lot to ask of a 20 something who's, you know, grown up with this as their primary form of connection with people. I think so too. And I've seen how overwhelming it can become. And I hear Michelle Obama's words when she said, when they go low, stay high or something, something to that effect, really, really thoughtful, you know, approach. Okay. So how do you define success? You know, I know it when I leave the building every day, I, I, it's just, uh, you know, if I've had one of those days where you know, I really, I really moved things forward today and I really, or I did something that made a difference today. That to me, it's just a feeling. It's just, I know it when I, when I feel it, you know, there's certain things like, you know, winning a championship, but 
you know, I didn't play too many minutes in game five to win our, our championship this year. I didn't, they uh, didn't suit you up. I, I had, mm-hmm. I did not play in that one, you had a cramp. Uh, yeah. but I know it when I see it, I, I can, I think I feel it more than anything else. Um, there, there's certainly, there's nice trophies when your name sports team of the year, there's reports that the NBA issues where now the Warriors are on top of those reports instead of on the bottom of those reports. And there, you know, there's little, there's, there's little indicators along the way, but I think at the end of the day, it's how you feel about the job you've done and, and whether or not you feel like you've really been able to contribute to something that collectively we did as a group that caused a lot of joy and a lot of happiness. Okay. So let's say wild professional success that, that you've had and you're on your deathbed. I know now it's, now it's a dreary thought, but you're on your deathbed and you didn't tell your parents uh, that you're gay. And then the other thought is that the second on follow on is that you didn't tell your industry, you know, through media, would you be, would you think that you were successful in, in either of those cases? I think I would have felt like I was maybe the luckiest guy in the world to experience the things that I had experienced, but, uh, I would, I know now that there would have been a, uh, a, a different level of fulfillment, um, where, Today, you know, there's, there's, uh, you know, nothing in my life that my, I can't share with my coworkers or, or that my coworkers don't know about my family or, you know, I can, I, there's just, there's no filters in terms of what I can or can't say to people. Uh, I'm, you know, more importantly, I think the depth of my relationship with others is at a completely different level than it was before because of the boundaries I had set in terms of what I, I wasn't going to ask you about what you did last weekend because I didn't want you to ask me what I did last weekend. So, uh, so freedom is yeah, what you found. There's a, there's a freedom yeah. and a, and a, and a completeness of, uh, of human relationships that you can have that, that was lacking in my life. So how do, how do you think about other people? Like, how do you think about humans? And I know it's a huge question, but like, what, what are we doing and how do you think about other people? Uh, when I'm, you know, I'm going to be thinking about the people in my life when I'm laying there on my deathbed. I'm not going to yeah. be thinking about, uh, inventing the slam dunk contest, <laughs> <laughs> which you did, right? Which was the, <laughs> I love that. Uh, yeah. Cause the, the NBA all-star weekend, right? Yeah. What you're credited for. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. It, and I, and I, uh, won't be wishing I had worked more hours and spent less time with my family. Um, you know, I, I think I do think about that stuff a lot. We've all had death in our lives and I've had death in my life. That's, you know, to me, a significant person dying in my life has always been incredibly inspirational, not depressing. Um, I've always taken that as a, as a kind of opportunity to recalibrate you know, and, and to assess like how I'm living my life and who I'm living it with. And am I being a good partner, uncle, brother, you know? Um, and I think it inspires me to do better. Um, and, and hopefully I got a lot more of those years to, to get more inspired and to do better than I'm doing. But I, I think the most important thing to me is that I've treated people in a way that reflects well on my character and on me. You know, that, that this is a, this is a, what goes around, comes around industry more than as much as any I've ever seen. And people who uh, are empowered and, and don't treat people well, inevitably fail. Um, it may not be in a year, it may not be in five years, but inevitably they fail. Um, 
going back to my very first Sonics locker room, when I walked into my first Sonics locker room in 1969, um, you know, we, we had, there were three athletes in that room who went out of their way to be nice to me. Um, and it's a great lesson because the three of those ended up going on to be the most successful people, uh, over the rest of their lives than anybody else in that locker room. Lenny Wilkins, who's in the Hall of Fame for being a player, being a coach, being a part of the dream team. Rod Thorne, who had a spectacular career, uh, not as a player, but 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 as an executive and uh, in the NBA. And uh, a guy by the name of Thomas Sherry, who became, whose numbers retired here at the Warriors, uh, who became an author, still a good friend today, all of them still good friends today. None of the rest of those guys had the time of day for a 16-year-old that didn't mean anything in their lives. But each of those three, in a hundred little ways, went out of their way to make me feel important. Hmm. Is there a phrase that guides you or your life? And then is there a phrase that, that, is, that resonates here at the, at the Warriors? <laughs> and this is like a philosophical, like, like, do you have a philosophy that guides you? Yeah. I, you know, I would say I, I keep a poster on my wall. That is my, you know, my kind of operating demeanor, which is the keep calm and carry on, you know, mm -hmm. like nobody ever sees me totally meltdown. <laughs> all meltdowns are done in private. <laughs> are they? So you have meltdowns. <laughs> right? We all do. Yeah. But, but I, have learned from the people that I've been around that those who were the calmest and the most thoughtful and the most stressful times are the people that I end up respecting the most. It's one of those characteristics that I try to try to bring into my life in terms of how to emulate that, because I think that that's a true test of leadership. So calm, being calm is a skill. And how do you train that skill or how have you developed that skill to become when other people are either anxious or angry or, uh, physiologically overwhelmed. How have you built that skill? You know, honestly, like much of my leadership style is just like, I'm going to conduct myself in a certain way. And I kind of expect you to, to, you know, in your own way, uh, try to reflect some of the things that, that I do. Uh, so I, I don't have a lecture about staying calm, you know, and, but certainly if I see somebody who, you know, is, you know, something bad, something's gone crazy wrong or stressed out about something. It is an opportunity to, to, you know, say, look, you know, this, this too shall pass, right? Let's figure out how to, you got a lot of people here to help you. Let's figure out how to make it better. Let's figure out, you know, if we can't, let's learn from it and let's move on. It's you know, at the end of the world, you know, the well, sun's going to come up tomorrow. Okay. Um, so as you're doing that, I'm hearing three things, your uh, perspective. So you keep perspective and that helps to keep calm or maintain a sense of calmness, then you also do gratitude, which is that, okay, there's other people here that are here to help us. And let's move through that as well. And a sense of optimism, it's going to get better. Like whatever it is now, it's going to get better. So you do, so your perspective in life, gratitude for others and optimism of the future. And then do you do anything around physiological reduction of, of activation? Do you do any breathing work or any sort of meditative work to have volitional control over your heart rate and your physiological responses? Wow. Uh, I guess the answer is no. I'm, but physical exercise is important to me, not yeah. to try to keep the pounds off, but more as a, as an escape and, and mental 
I'm one of those people at the gym who doesn't talk to a person. I've got my music on in my head. I'll, it's my time to be by myself, to get as tired as I can possibly get, to, uh, you know, not str- not to worry about, you know, anything that's going to happen or could happen. It, it is a, for me, physical exercise is an important ritual several times a week just to be able to kind of, that's my decompression, I guess, a little bit. Okay. Where does pressure come from? You know, in this business, it's the most public, uh, it, it, for a small business, we are the most public possible business you could have. You know, there's a, you can't have a newscast that doesn't have a section of the newscast devoted to your industry. You, you have, uh, you know, any media outlet has a, uh, a section devoted to deciding how well you're doing your job. Um, you have ownership. Everyone's got a boss, whoever you are, you still have a boss out there somewhere. And, you know, you're, you're doing your best to, to excel in, in your work environment. Uh, your family can put pressures on you. I mean, I think, I think pressure can come from anywhere. You Uh, see it more as an ex external sources. Uh, only for me, I would say it's probably 50, 50, you know, I feel, I feel a huge responsibility for the 300 people who come to work here every day to do everything I can to make our organization and their personal lives, uh, business lives as successful as we possibly can make them. And, you know, I think they know I've got their back. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm most proud of the people that have, I've worked with who've gone on to brilliant jobs, careers, success, however they define it in the world. And I, you know, I, I spent a lot of Almost every day, I'm I'm on the phone with somebody about somebody who's looking for a job somewhere, or somebody's getting referred to a job, and you know how I can be helpful in that process of of uh, getting them to the next thing that they want to do. And I think all these people here know that that that's that's I'm gonna I'm gonna do that for them and use my network to try to be helpful to them at some point in time when they you know see an opportunity that they really want to go after that, that I'm going to be a cheerleader, not a somebody trying to hold them back. Um, I don't know if there's any one thing, but I, but I think all those things contribute. Knowing what you've experienced and the success and failures that you've had, we haven't talked about those, but you know, knowing with your life experiences, what would guidance or insight would you give to your younger self? <laughs> I say this all the time, pick great bosses, right? I was so lucky to work for a series of people who absolutely taught me everything about what it was. I got, I got very lucky, you know, right to my first boss at the Sonics, who was like the coolest marketing guy ever in the history of the world. And I could never be that good at that to the young lawyer, David Stern, long before he was commissioner, who just had this, you know, unquenchable desire for knowledge, right? Just the most well-read person I've ever been, the most, the person who read about the craziest variety of topics ever and would always be handing me a story about an industry that had nothing to do with us, but that he could see somehow there was a dotted line to what we were doing. I think this, the second you think you got it all figured out, you got a really big problem. Every day is an opportunity to reevaluate the way you think about everything. And if you, if there's somebody who's doing something that's hundred degrees opposite from what you're doing, the thing you need to do is try to figure out why they feel that way about that and, and work your way back to how you feel about it. Not 
find fault in how they're analyzing the same situation and justifying the way you do it. I think attitudinally, that's probably the most important thing to just wake up every day thinking like, I got so much to learn today. I'm like starting from zero again. I got to, I got to go figure it all out and be open to thinking about the way other people view the world as an opportunity to refine the way you think about it. Mm. How do you wake up in the morning? Because you know, that what you just described requires work to be open to new ideas and to explore equally intense opposite ideas. Is there something that you do to kickstart your day or like it? I, you know, I have my favorite hours at my first hour when I crawl out of bed and get my first cup of coffee and I just read for probably, probably a solid hour. Whether what, it's, what do you read? Whether it's, you know, first I got a glance at my emails overnight, uh, but then it's, you know, I'm a big, you know, I'll read my San Francisco Chronicle, I'll read my New York Times, I'll read my industry publication, uh, all of that before I ever get in the shower or, and, and it helps helps me think about the day. It helps me think about, you know, what I'm going to do today. And do you get me. out of bed to yes. read? Yes. Yeah. So you're out yeah, of bed yeah, reading. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And are there any books that have been important to you? Peter Gruber's uh, Tell the Wind. Yes, of <laughs> yeah. course. Peter. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I read a lot of them, but I don't know that I would pick any of them. Uh, do you read, do you listen to books or read books? No, I read. You read books. Yeah. yeah I'm, pick them I'm still a, Tactile, tactile experience. Yeah. Uh, I, I even with my newspaper. I mean, I read everything online too. But if I have the opportunity to sit down and and read it, I especially in periodicals, I appreciate. Uh, I wanted to be a journalist uh, when I went to the University of Washington. I it was at a time when journalists were heroes. It was during Watergate, and you know, journalists were amongst the most respected of industries uh, of professionals in industry, and and I got a great knowledge and respect for the organization of news when you're talking about uh, a well-run organization and, you know, having thoughtful editors and how stories are placed and who's thought about what's more important than something else. And I, I appreciate having somebody do that editing for me without me just curating it all on my own. That might take me to things I'm interested in, but not necessarily give me perspective. When you strip it all down, what are you most hungry for? Like most hungry for in your life? You know, at this stage, I, I, it's probably evolved a little bit. I, I think maybe that sense of uh, fulfillment that uh, I've been a part of something. I've always wanted to be a part of something. I've never, you know, the, the worst like little period of my work life was I uh, actually left the NBA to go to uh, a, a company Fox created uh, called Fox Sports Enterprises. I was the president of Fox Sports Enterprises when they owned the Dodgers, Dodger stadium and some other things. And they had, uh, you know, I, the worst, you know, I, I was at that job for six months after having worked at the NBA for 17 years, they sold controlling ownership to another entity. And, uh, that was, that was the best and worst time of my life. It was the best time of my life because I, um, really got to sit back and say, you know, what, what makes me happy in a business environment? What, what really were the things that drove that? And that led me back to the NBA and back to the Phoenix Suns and eventually here. Um, it was the worst time because I was not in a collaborative uh, environment, which I, I miss. I would be a really bad, uh, you know, remote employee because I need 
I feed off of the energy of other people who I can talk to and, and be around and, and engage with on an ongoing basis, face to face. You're an extrovert. I'm not though. I'm not, a, I'm not, oh. I, that's my, that's, that's my, that's how I gather my information and form, you know, get, get my satisfaction, but I'm not an extrovert. I'm, I think by nature, kind of an introvert. More introverted. Yeah. Are you an introverted so. feeler? Do you feel properly? Uh, or do you express your feelings to others? Uh, I'm, I'm, I've evolved there. Yeah. I think I'm yeah. now much better expressing my feelings to others. I think I, has, I more early in my life was much more introverted in my feelings okay. as well. If you were to ask a, someone on the path of mastery, a legend in whatever field that, that you conjure up, what question would you want to ask them? Well, I, I think the core question that I got to is, do you really understand what motivates you and gives you satisfaction in your life? You know, because I think that sometimes we get a little off course on that. I think I got a little off course in that when I left the NBA after, you know, 17 year run the league office and went to baseball because, you know, it was seemed like the next big thing to me. And then I realized that it was those relationships. I, what I, what I found I missed was those relationships that I had spent uh, 25 years building and was not able to draw on that to be successful in my new... I mean, I could draw from the experience, but I, but I wasn't as engaged with people in, in being successful. And I, that's, that's what makes me happy. It's the, the collaboration that goes into uh, success that, that you experience together as a group. And I want to be... I want to... I wanna, be a big part of that. I want to really feel like I was a contributor in achieving something. Does that come before uh, financial or public success? It, would you put it in that order? Yeah, for me. Yeah. I mean, I, okay. I absolutely. That that absolutely is true. Okay. Is um, thank you for your time. We're I'm, we're about to round up, but I want to give you some kind of quick hits and see how you respond to these. Is there a word that cuts to the center of what you understand most? a word or a phrase, <laughs> you know, I, I think, I think that knowledge is power. I mean, I would say, I think, uh, I'm not, like I said, I don't ever go into the room thinking I'm the brightest one there, but if I can learn more about any particular subject, I'm going to make a better decision. Okay. And then, um, what is your ability to take risks? One to 10. I would say in my business life, it's very high, eight, right? Uh, I would say in my personal life, I'm less risky. Um, interestingly, well, I yeah. About what it number that would way. that be? I would, I would say I'm probably a four when it comes. Is to it a, um, Are you better at emotional risk or financial risk or strategic uh, risk? Terrible on financial risk personally, and and really good at it. Uh, in my career. So it's, okay. uh, maybe, maybe we're discovering some, uh, some, some strange faults. Yeah. Or, That's or, fun. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. better to, it's better to play with, um, <laughs> with house money sometimes for sure. Okay. Um, one to 10, how important is music for you? Uh, nine, really important. What kind of music? Everything. Everything. I'm one of those yeah. people that if you look at my playlist, you're like, really? You listen to all that stuff? Yeah. What are you listening to now? Uh, I'm on French house music right now. Come um, on. Yeah, no, it's really, so that's, what, it's, that's out it's, there. it's now, you know, from seven to eight o'clock, I'd have my, my French house music. One to 10 spirituality. Um, also an evolution. 
Um, I think maybe it's a natural progression with age. I would say, uh, I would say an eight also. Okay. One to 10 breaking rules. Again, I'm going to tell you there's a complete disconnect between my personal and my, uh, and my professional life. I think we, uh, preach risk taking in, yeah. in prof- my professional life. And that drives me a lot. I think, uh, breaking rules in my personal life. Uh, I'm, it's very important to me not to break rules. My yeah. It's life. interesting. Cause I, I, I saw you what kind of work through that, but you took great risks in your personal life, you know, like world-class risks, <laughs> world breaking news type of risks. And then also that there's an intimate risk of the, the first time that you, that in your model, and I'm, I'm trying to find the right words to this, be, so stop me if I'm wrong on this, but in your head, there was a taboo nature to being gay. You weren't quite sure people around you didn't know what to do. Like you didn't have models, so to speak. And that's an incredible risk to take the first, to have a first gay experience because it's so different than everyone else, the guys that you're talking to or, you know, hanging out with. So that's an, that, that way back when, whenever that was, feels like that would be a, an important risk moment as well. I guess so. But, 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 you know, it's nature, right? It's not, it's, it's a, it's, it's something innate. It's not, uh, yeah. you know, it, it's not, that wasn't a choice to me. You, you I, I guess, it. I guess the moment was a risk, but, but yeah. it wasn't it, a Actually, I, I think, um, one of my family members is gay and that she says very much the same things, which is that, listen, I was born this way. Like it's, <laughs> and I wouldn't choose it for anyone. It's hard. And she, you know, she's got a point of view about it. And I think that the point is that some people could not act on it, could not you know, express their true nature. And that's a risk as well. You know, my, uh, uh, I, I think I'm allowed to talk about this. My partner, you know, was married, has two beautiful children and it wasn't until he was 27 years old that he kind of came to grips with the fact that he was living a life that was, uh, orchestrated and not, not natural. For oh, that's him. a cool thought. Orchestrated, yeah. not natural. That's a cool thought. Yeah. Yeah. That there's risk in that as well. Okay. Um, thank you so much. Like, Thank you. Yeah. Like, I, I feel like I should be, you know, writing you a check after this session for yeah, my, no, for my no, therapy. No, it's not, but, spo- uh, it's not supposed to be that at all. This is supposed <laughs> to be, <laughs> this is supposed to be a curious conversation about like how, oh. how do people on the path of mastery organize their thoughts, their worldview and their philosophical, you know, approaches. And, you know, is there anything you could pass on to folks that me included about how to develop like internal strength? You know, life experience is just an amazing thing. You know, I just think uh, that if you're, if you're, you know, emotionally engaged every day and you're experiencing life as it comes to you. And, uh, you know, I think I went through a lot of years of my life where nothing bad ever happened. And, you know, I certainly learn a lot more from when bad things happen than when good things happen. But I, I think, you know, the, one of the blessings of being a human being, I think, is that uh, if you have the, you know, openness to experience life, that uh, the, the accumulation of those experiences is the most valuable thing that you can ever have. Brilliant. 
Okay. Uh, what do you hope the NBA gets right? What do you see the future of basketball? You know, in- so bullish. It's. I don't think the NBA has ever been in a better position than it is right now. And if you were, uh, if you're looking out over the next thirty years, uh, there's just there's just so many positive things happening. I think uh, first and foremost, it's international nature. Um, you know, there's no. Uh, you know, Americans don't understand what the rest of the world calls football, you know, soccer and how much bigger it is than the NFL or major league baseball or the NBA or all those combined. Uh, but there's only two sports played worldwide and it's, it's what we call soccer and basketball. And we have a unique model, uh, especially as you compare it to football, basketball, rather, I mean, what we call soccer, uh, in that, uh, while every kid growing up kicking a soccer ball, dreams of playing for his club team or his national team in the world cup every team grow every kid growing up bouncing a basketball dreams of playing in the nba there's no other competitive environment that is equal to that so we have between 25 30 percent of our players now are non-american and that number will continue to grow and the ability as a business to then export that uh, around the world is something that Impossible in baseball, based on the real estate necessary to play the game. Harder in football, uh, American football, because while you can play on a field in soccer, for whatever reason, the American game has not been able to grow uh, as quickly internationally as it has domestically. So I, I think I think the future is is genius for for the NBA. I also think at this particular point in time in our society now, I don't know if this is a you know, if this is something that continues, but I think the power of personalities on NBA teams is something very different than we have in other sports right now, uh, for better or for worse. An individual player uh, is so influential in the success of a team. And as we talked earlier, the social profile of those individuals now has been blown up, you know, uh, bigger than it's ever been historically. And for whatever reason, football and baseball have evolved more as your team first, player second, and the NBA kind of embraced, uh, listen, this is about the players early on. And in our social environment today, that is really resonating with young people. If you look at the audience ages, if you look at all the social media measurements, uh, the NBA is, is blowing away the other sports right now. And maybe it's a moment in time, or maybe it's it's something that you build on going forward in the future. It's, you know, I, I, but I like our chances. Where do you see technology in five years to, to, for optimization, human optimization? Yeah, it's, it's such an interesting subject as we're building a new facility, uh, because, uh, you know, the world is built around our handheld devices right now. And so I think the most important thing is whatever you're doing has to work as incredibly well on that device, uh, better, long-term than we're worrying about a television screen or, or anything else that, that device has got to, one, it's got to work, which is the most important thing. So if the environment we create has to give you access and, and the bandwidth to do anything you want, whenever you want at the same time, you know, I think there's a uniqueness to the in-person experience, uh, of attending a sporting event. And I, and I especially, you know, believe that's true of the NBA where, you know, you're in an incredibly intimate environment with guys running around in tank tops and and uh, shorts, and the way the game is covered on television is all about faces and emotion. Uh, you know, 
close proximity uh, reactions to calls, all of that. It's a it's it's an intensely emotional uh, experience that uh, the pace of the game as well, I think, is really really important. So, from a technology perspective, our view is that we're working really hard wherever we think. Uh, Technology can enhance our guest experience. We love it, but just to have it for the sake of having it is a distraction, not an enhancement. And I think that that's, we're, we're trying to start with the end experience and work our way back to figure out where technology enhances that and where it doesn't, and not be caught up in needing to have the newest and best toy, uh, but making sure that if we go down a path that it, it's it's truly additive to the connection that somebody feels with our team, not not just another thing. Mm, very cool. Last big question. How do you articulate or define mastery? How do you think about the concept <laughs> of mastery? I, I, I might have said this to you on the phone the first time we talked. I think anybody who thinks they have it certainly is on the wrong path, right? So I think it, it should be an aspirational thing that you live with every day, not something you ever feel you really accomplished. God. Where can people find you? Where can they follow along? Where can they just rwelts at warriors.com? I talk to everybody who emails me. Oh, it's oh boy. it's yeah. the at Rick Welts, yes, but at, at but, Rick Welts. but you're not yeah. you're not gonna be very excited about my uh, my Twitter <laughs> post. Okay, good. Okay. All right. Thank you again. Um, it's an honor to to learn from your perspective and, and your journey. And so thank you for your time. Thanks. Yeah. Well, how fun was that conversation? <laughs> Rick Welts is on it. And that was just a joy to be, um, to learn from him and to feel how he communicates and see the thoughtfulness in the way that he sees the world. And so that was a joy. I hope that you were able to pull out as many gems as I was in that conversation. And maybe if you miss a couple or you want to further that discussion, head over to our community. And you guys are doing a phenomenal job at building this community. It's on findingmastery.net slash tribe. And it's just, it's a a bunch of us that are supporting and challenging each other on this path of mastery. We're posting things, we're challenging questions, and it's a phenomenal, um, it's just a phenomenal community. And then if you want to ask some questions, hit us up on social. On Instagram, it's at Finding Mastery. And then um, we've also got Twitter is at Michael Gervais, and that's G-E-R-V-A-I-S. And you can also follow along with other conversations that we've had on our website, findingmastery.net, as well as punching over to iTunes and subscribing to the podcast there. And you know what? If you haven't had the moment and you've enjoyed these conversations, please write a review. It helps. It builds awareness. It's part of the algorithm for iTunes to keep us rolling. So please do that if you will. And until next time, thank you for listening. And we hope to hear how you're doing on your path of mastery in your own life as well. Thank you so much for diving into another episode of Finding Mastery with us. Our team loves creating this podcast and sharing these conversations with you. We really appreciate you being part of this community. And if you're enjoying the show, the easiest no-cost way to support is to hit the subscribe or follow button wherever you're listening. Also, if you haven't already, please consider dropping us a review on Apple or Spotify. We are incredibly grateful for the support and feedback. If you're looking for even more insights, we have a newsletter we send out every Wednesday. Punch over to findingmastery.com slash newsletter to sign up. 
This show wouldn't be possible without our sponsors, and we take our recommendations seriously. And the team is very thoughtful about making sure we love and endorse every product you hear on the show. If you want to check out any of our sponsor offers you heard about in this episode, you can find those deals at findingmastery.com slash sponsors. And remember, no one does it alone. The door here at Finding Mastery is always open to those looking to explore the edges and the reaches of their potential so that they can help others do the same. So join our community, share your favorite episode with a friend, and let us know how we can continue to show up for you. Lastly, as a quick reminder, information in this podcast and from any material on the Finding Mastery website and social channels is for information purposes only. If you're looking for meaningful support, which we all need, one of the best things you can do is to talk to a licensed professional. So seek assistance from your healthcare providers. Again, a sincere thank you for listening. Until next episode, be well, think well, and keep exploring.